0: This is the Barney's Podcast. I'm Noor Tagore. Dapper Dan is a legend, an icon. He's the man who made high end streetwear a thing in the 80s and defined the look of hip hop back then. Salt and Peppa, Mike Tyson, LL Cool J, all of them wore his designs. And not to mention, as Dapp tells it, drug dealers who were his first customers. Dapper Dan infamously boosted luxury brand logos like Fendi, Louis Vuitton, and Gucci and used them in his own designs. People called them knockups.
1: I've been the silent partners of Gucci before they even knew I was a silent partner.
0: Exactly. Do you feel like you were paying homage to the brands?
1: No, I felt like I was paying them back.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Lawsuits from some of those same luxury brands shut him down in the 90s. But Dapper Dan is back and he's even partnered with Gucci to reopen his boutique in Harlem. He's written a new memoir telling all of these incredible stories Dapper Dan made in Harlem. I've read it and I still can't get some of the scenes out of my head and I wanted to talk about all of it. His stories, his impact on culture and the intersection of hip hop and fashion. But when he walked into the studio this morning in all of his swagger and glory, I had to ask, what was Dapper Dan wearing?
1: I don't like to dress down. I like to be colorful. When on a rainy day, I like to wear something black outside and then something underneath colorful. Yeah. The satin yeah. shirt? Yes.
0: You can barely and see the print.
1: Yes, yes.
0: And then you have a pin of yourself.
1: Yes. From the on your jacket. Met, from the Met Gala.
0: That's from the Met Gala? Yeah,
1: it's a collection pin from the Met Gala,
0: which, which I'm so proud of. you attended and had a table this year.
1: Yes, exactly. It gave me an opportunity To dress the people at my table in collaboration with other designers of color. Because at the table, everybody had their own look. And that's what I've always been about. Me helping someone give themselves their own look.
0: And people love wearing your name. I didn't know if I should call you Dapper Dan or Dan. And I hear people call you Dap all the time.
1: Dap is good. The familiarity feels good. Mm -hmm.
0: Well... Dapp, something that I really loved reading about was how you got your name. So can you tell us a little bit about the Dapper Dan story?
1: Well, you, you go through a series of names. My first name was after my next oldest brother. He was out there. He used to go down the village and hang out with Ginsburg and Leroy Brown. I mean, his name was Moon. So I was Little Moon little for moon, a while. Little <laughs> Moon, yeah. Yeah. And then um, after, after that, <laughs> you know, I started getting more knowledge about the street and about life and um, can I can I take this a little longer tell me yes. from your heart I look at the whole picture right okay when you look at the slave being captured in africa i remember reading how certain slaves would have to kill each other just for air because the way they had them chained and their pictures changed so when you talk about the middle passage and then when you talk about the 200 and 350 years of slavery here Right. And then you talk about the strength that you must have Mm. to endure all that. Right. And then people like my father and mother who come from small towns, USA, this migration that took place coming from the south and all that history behind them. Mm. You know, so these are the people that comprise the Harlem that I grew up in. So they were the best at what they do. Mm. So we had those who. The best crooks, the best con men, the best pimps. You know, then we had the intellectuals, you know, the poets, the novelists, and all of them, right? So Dapper Dan was uh, the guy who they named me after. He played tenor saxophone. He was a master con man, you know? He had all these talents that we we look up to in the street because those are the first people you see get money, Mm. You know, and he he was away at jail when I was mastering the art of gambling and I got so good at it and I dressed really, you know, the part. When you're a gambler, you have to make people not only want to win your money, they have to want to win you. Dapper Dan was that kind of guy. He was everything, you know. And then when Dapper Dan came out of jail and I finally met him and I hung out with him and he hung out with me and I would... Let him hustle with me. And then one day he says to me, he said, man, from now on, you Dapper Dan. I want everybody to call me Tenor Man Dan because he played tenor saxophone.
0: Wow. It's almost just like an incredible sign of respect to be able to kind of pass that down and be like, I see something in you. This is what you should be going by.
1: Yeah, I had gotten much better than him and he anointed me with that title.
0: Amazing. Mm -hmm. One thing that really moved me in the way that the book was written and your memoir was written. We feel, see, and hear Harlem. So I would love for you to kind of take us back to that place on Lexon 129th and describe what that felt like growing up.
1: The moment that never leaves me is waking up in the morning, every morning to Joe Bostic gospel caravan. The initial part of me growing up in Harlem is so tied in with gospel, with with the Holy Ghost. Yeah, every morning before I went to school, my mother would have Joe Bostic gospel caravan. And it was like, a train is coming. And that's how it started started (laughs) with gospel music. That was the main energy that ignited me. And um, I went to like storefront churches. Mm -hmm. To give you an idea of how important the church was at that time, Sunday morning, everybody went to church, but they would all be going to black churches. And so one preacher said, yeah, Sunday morning, 11 o'clock is America's most segregated hour because black people be going to black churches and white people be going to white churches. But we all went to church. And um, the Harlem and I that I grew up with initially, we were all poor. And I had friends, Alonzo and Nogordio, who were Greek, Bobby Bondi and Richie Bondi were Italian. Jackie Michael was, was Irish. So I had this small world, this microcosm of New York City and the world at large. But we were all poor. We were all poor together. I mean, they were doing. Did a you little...
0: know you were poor?
1: Oh, I knew I was poor because I was poorer than them. I thought their their level was where you get to. You know, especially like uh, Bobby Bermondi and Richie Bermondi, because every Christmas they would give me their toys from last Christmas. Yeah.
0: How did it shape you as the designer and the person you are today?
1: What I learned from that experience is that everybody knows how to do good, but everybody doesn't know how to do bad. I learned how to do bad, you know, and keep going. And that sustained me. That's what other people call doing bad was all right for me. I could I could take this, you know? So that uh made a big difference in my life.
0: You've mentioned how the drug game was cursed. Was
1: and is, yes.
0: Can you share with us how the drug game in Harlem specifically impacted the success and the downfall of the boutique?
1: Not only the sex and downfall of the boutique, but the downfall of Harlem itself. I was the last one to start, you know, using heroin, and the first one to stop, because they say, oh, Danny Boy, no, ain't no way in the world he would do that, you know? But um, in order for me to come out that I had to read my way out That I said, I'm going to find out where this came from. Mm. What I realized was, like, we had a large, Italian community in Harlem, and they were a powerful, like, criminal organization. There's a group that were called the Purple Gang. And the Purple Gang was responsible for the majority of drugs at the time that was being distributed in Harlem. I witnessed the evolution of the drug epidemic in Harlem. I am the last generation that grew up in Harlem Mm. that didn't see a drug epidemic. Kids coming up now, they don't know what Harlem is like without a drug epidemic. And so I have watched my community go downhill from there.
0: How do you find the balance with the way drugs are portrayed in hip hop and the way that you've seen drugs have an effect on community and the way that it's talked about? How do you balance those conversations?
1: Well, hip hop music talks about the glory side, the glorious side of it. You know, they don't emphasize the detrimental side of it. And that's what's missing. Yeah, you could tell that story. You could tell the glory story. But hip hop needs to talk about the dark side of culture, you know, the less glorious side of culture to what it does to people. And that's what's missing.
0: You used creativity in your designs that the creative energy was channeled through anger because the luxury houses or the brands were not selling to you. How did you and how do you channel the emotions that you had and have now into your creativity as you design?
1: Uh, Once I was um, at a place where I buy fabric at, and um, I was standing in front of some fabrics, rolls of fabric, right? I didn't realize I was standing there for over an hour, and a guy walks up to me who owns the place, who happened to be a friend of mine. We became friends. And he said to me, he said, you realize you've been standing in He said, nobody does that but you and my wife because she makes molds too. He said, you guys, when you stand in front of a roll of fabric, you don't see fabric. You see garments. And that's what, that's what <laughs> I do. You look into something. Right. You look into it, you know. I was conscious of the fact that I see things different. And so when I looked at the Gucci bag and the Fendi bag and a guy came in with that Louis Vuitton bag and I saw that bag and I saw the symbols on the bag and I saw the the gravitational force it had on the people who was putting it, I saw that bag as what it could look like if I created it, Mm. if I refashioned it. And so that's the way I think of culture. I think culture should reflect that. You know, it's like when I take people on the tour of Harlem. We walk around Harlem, they see buildings, but I see memories of what them buildings were like. And so what I do with them buildings, when I take them on a tour, I extract the culture that came from them buildings.
0: That resonates even today with the things that you're doing and the way that you design or the way that you work. And it's it's very intentional. When you look at some of your old designs, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: do you remember what you were feeling while you were executing them?
1: I remember what the temple, what the time was, and the individual were, and what they were trying to say, and what I was helping them to say. That's what I remember. The story is in each and every garment. I feel like that's why I remain relevant for so long, because I'm a part of everybody. I change with the music because I'm a part of the individual who's making the music. I got to help them reflect themselves.
0: What was your underlying story that you and your heart know exists in every single design?
1: My underlying story, it comes directly out of when I watch A Raisin in the Sun. I remember the scene from the movie like it was yesterday. Sidney Poitier walks by a restaurant and he looks in the window and he saw the white boys making deals and everything. And his mother comes into this money and he tells her, he said, Ma, I, I want to do this business. Mom, I want to do this business deal. I know I can make deals. I know I can do what the white boys do. So everything that I was doing was another brick to build the building of who I really am. You know, I can do what they did. The ones who rejected me, the ones who wouldn't sell to me, the ones who wouldn't allow me to be here. No, nah, no. Nah.
0: Is that why you were angry?
1: That's why I was so angry. I harnessed that anger.
0: Are you still angry at them?
1: Um, but I call it anger, control anger. I think we all need some control anger. We all need to be upset with things that are not right. And try to write them. So in that sense, Mm. yeah, I'm still angry. But I think that a change is going to come. I sincerely think that Gucci is spearheading this change.
0: Can you just walk us through your relationship with Gucci? Not from the recent years, but back when the boutique was opened the first time around to where you are now.
1: Go back in the day? Yeah. Let's see. Me and Gucci have a good relationship under the table and over the table
0: <laughs> you know we had
1: this relationship like uh gucci i've been the silent partners of gucci before they even knew i was a silent it's, partner
0: exactly it's
1: a misconception that gucci rated me gucci never rated me it was uh fendi.
0: fendi and louis vuitton and mcm yes,
1: yes those are the ones who rated me i guess gucci always knew that we were going to be close one day <laughs> yeah
0: so do you remember when the raids began at the boutique
1: I do remember the first one. It was like, when they came and they pulled up, I didn't know what was going it was Louis on. Louis Vuitton? It was Louis Vuitton. Well, you know, we was really radical. So we wouldn't let the reporters come in. They had just raided downtown, Chinatown. Mm-hmm. And then they came up and the reporters was with them. We wouldn't go in. They were scared to come in. I don't know. We was going to throw water on their cameras or something. People in the community started coming in like gangsters from the neighborhood. It got like a little bit ugly. And then we had real vicious dogs in the basement that didn't even belong to me. And yeah, the dogs it, it in the basement
0: a, were protecting
1: Somebody in the basement. I have nothing to do with their basement. Ah, okay. Uh, yeah, yeah. So it was it was a real mess.
0: But what was specific about the raids were that these these luxury brands had these raids going on in the boutique, but they were brands like Louis Vuitton and Fendi that hadn't started making clothes yet. They were only making bags and leather goods. Yes. Did you ever feel like it was ever justified because you were you weren't making something that they were making? I
1: wasn't making what they were making exactly. I wasn't using the material that they was using. I basically dealt with furniture, car interiors, and garments. And uh, I did. And I even made Louis Vuitton and colors Louis Vuitton wasn't even using, <laughs> you know. Do you Everything,
0: think? Do you think you inspired them? The thing that I
1: that they were doing, if I did that, I wouldn't even have been hip. The the thing was to take it away from there, not to come to it, but to walk away from it in a way that has never been done before. So that was the whole thing.
0: Do you feel like you were paying homage to the brands?
1: No, I felt like I was paying them back. <laughs> 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 not, not let me in the door. They didn't let me in the door. So I kicked the door in yeah
0: you kick the door in, yeah, do you think that they started making clothes because of you?
1: I'm positive, not me per se, but what myself and hip hop was able to generate mm. it It got to the point they could not ignore this powerful cultural force that was taking place, you know, and it has to do with a lot of the young- white kids. Gravitating towards the culture, you know, and the interaction and appreciating the culture and the the culture spreading and growing. Yeah.
0: One of the highlights of you becoming the Dapper Dan we see today was your numerous trips to different countries in Africa, specifically when you were in college. Can you tell me about the tailor that you met in Liberia that— who made the outfits that you came home with that no one else had?
1: Wow, that was amazing. Initially, I went to Africa in 1968 to explore my roots. That was a radical time for us. I mean, at that time, weren't many black men or young people going to Africa at that time, 1968. We was just becoming color-conscious, African-conscious at the time. You know, it was, say it loud, you're black and proud, time. And so... On, this, on my second trip, I was in Monrovia, Liberia, and I, I was at the height of my super fly then. So before my trip back, I said, I got to get me some African artifacts. So I go down to the African market, and I'm walking through the market, and I'm looking at artifacts, and I see some paintings and craftware that I want to get. And I asked the guy, how much is that? I say I like that. He said, I like the suit you got. I said, you want to trade? He says, Yeah. I ran up into the hotel, got all my luggage, <laughs> everything, <laughs> shoes, everything, came down to the market, started negotiating.
0: Your you know, clothes for his clothes.
1: My clothes for his artifacts and for him to make me clothes as well. Right.
0: So you got for two for one.
1: I got two for one. With the clothes, I had to buy like maybe a little bit of the material. mm but I got two for one, and I was so excited about that, man. I said, "Why would I come to Africa with American clothes and want to take back American clothes?" I said, "Now nah, I'm taking I'm taking Africa back with me." That, that changed everything for me, and that's what encouraged me to uh, start making clothes and hiring African tailors. I ended up having twelve Senegalese tailors working, open twenty four hours a day, three hundred sixty five days. You know, ten years, amazing.
0: Can you describe the culture? that existed within Dapper Dan's Boutique in the 80s and the 90s? What, if I were to walk in during that time, what could I feel and expect?
1: Okay, what I'm so proud of is the way I make people feel. My ability to transform people from the moment I see them, like I could see from the back of my store, straight through the front door window, when somebody's getting ready to come in. Mm. The first thing I knew that I should do And I always did, is I run up to greet them at the door to make them feel important no matter who they were. You know, people appreciated that. And people like to hear. They know a lot about my street stories and they they like to hear my street stories. A lot of people came there because they were impressed with the people who were impressed with me. So they said something must be up with him.
0: Yeah. So something special. Yeah. The culture that you had within the store, it was a hangout spot. It was open 24-7 every single day for nine years. (laughs) Yes. This 24-7 adventure, what did that mean for your community in Harlem?
1: Well, you have to understand that I had like an underground community. 90% of the people that I catered to were gangsters or entertainers. So it was perfect for them.
0: You say that. For you, fashion isn't about expression. It's about power. Exactly. Can you elaborate on that?
1: Okay. For instance, there's no such thing as ugly. Fashion is about beauty. But there's really no such thing as ugly. There's no like right or wrong in fashion. There's a weak or strong in fashion. It's Powerful people determine the outcome of fashion. It's powerful people say whether we're going to be involved or not. Mm. It's powerful people that say this style is this way, this style is that way. How do you change that? When your voice gets so loud that everybody got to listen. Hip hop was so loud, everybody listened. So that's a voice. That's a weapon, you know. And you got to take that weapon to change things, you know. And so, when you look at the bottom line and the culture, that's a part of the bottom line. That is the weapon you use and the instrument you use to change what goes on at the top.
0: A lot of people have conversations about luxury houses and respecting other cultures, uh, including Gucci and the blackface controversy. And that was something that you had you had spoken out about as soon as it happened. Can you tell me about how you felt when you first heard about it and how you felt after the result of handling it?
1: Well, I'm a rational person. I know that Gucci is a billion dollar business. I know that if you have a billion dollar business, you're not going to play around with symbols. That is too inconsistent with rational thinking. Who is going to allow themselves, even if they are racist, mm. to interfere with a billion dollar business playing around with a blackface? Gucci is fully aware that people of color are very powerful influencers. We don't constitute a large proportion of the sales, it's minimal. It Maybe three to five percent. But what we do constitute is a powerful global influence on fashion. And they know that. That is too inconsistent with rational thinking. That's one thing. Okay, so Gucci made amends. I told them. I think you need to come here and talk about it Mm. in Harlem and let everybody know. And they came and they did that. And I think what they're continuing to do is to be involved in, you know, cultural inclusivity and, and diversity. So I think people really need to do their own research on exactly what this is.
0: Do you think that the way Gucci handled it should be the standard for other luxury houses? Who absolutely.
1: Get in absolutely. So, yes, I do.
0: But, okay, so how do you get luxury fashion houses and corporations and organizations, how do you get them to truly respect communities of color who are doing that? And I don't mean respect with just like uh, collaborating or saying something, but putting money back into the communities that are constantly being the ones who are pushing the culture they want to be a part of forward.
1: What we have to do here is to say, well, you you have to hire more people of color. Involve more people of color in these corporations and Gucci is willing to do that. You know? So we have to just take that to everybody. You don't get mad and upset if somebody talk about you. You know? You make them do something to make the world a better place or make this corporate world a better place.
0: What piece of advice do you have for people who do make it to the decision-making tables like you have with Gucci?
1: The problem is not at the top. And let me explain to you what I mean. The problem is at the bottom. So the problem here is for the, those who can speak truth to power while power is willing to listen has to convince those at the bottom who's been offended.
0: We live in a time right now with social media where everybody can amplify their voices as loud as they want. Everybody has a platform. Everybody has the opportunity to build a community. But I find myself scratching my head and saying, well, what's the goal? You're really loud. You're saying a lot. But what's your end goal? And how are you going about it?
1: Exactly. You got to understand that being offended shouldn't allow you to end up with zero. Listen to the voice of those of us who know the inside and what this is. Because if we're here telling the corporate world we want diversity, inclusivity, and you down there telling the the, the corporate world, hell with you, I ain't even dealing with you, that's a division that won't make things happen.
0: You're brilliant.
1: (laughs) I wish I was.
0: You're also very well read. And it's obvious that reading has had such a huge impact on your life and the way that you carry your story or the way that you understand other people's stories.
1: Reading is liberation. You know, I knew that because I was a history major, and I, you know, and that's a big story in itself, you know. So um I said, I'm gonna find out where this came from.
0: I know you're such an incredible, avid reader, and I've mentioned it so many times, but I wanted to ask, what? is the last book you read and the current book you're reading.
1: Well, currently I'm reading Trevor Noah's book.
0: I have that. I haven't started it.
1: Yeah, his book is amazing. So enlightening. I learned a lot about because I never went to South Africa. and all the African countries I've been, I just never South Africa. So that's what I, I'm reading now.
0: So on a lighter note, do you remember the first time you went to Barney's?
1: Wow. Barney's. Oh, yeah, I do. You know why? <laughs> <laughs> because Barney was in there. And I went to, I was in there with a friend, right? And he was shopping. And Barney, the owner, was that his real name?
0: Yes, the founder is Barney Pressman. He was the
1: big wig in the store. And we was going for floor to floor. And he was on the other floor. And we saw how all the salesperson was snapping in shape wow that was 1001 years ago
0: pre-boutique days
1: pre-boutique years yes
0: did you actually that was hustler
1: days when i was yeah okay that's
0: that's what i was trying to i was trying to see that's so wild thank you so much dapper dan or dap it's been such an honor
1: thank you for having me
0: you're absolutely great thank you so much thank you you can get dap's book anywhere books are sold the Barneys Podcast is hosted by me, Nor Tagori, and produced by Barneys and Transmitter Media. This episode was produced by Jessica Glazer. The show is executive produced by Anna Deutsch, Greta Cohn, and me. This episode was edited by Michael Garofalo and mixed by Rick Kwan. If you like what you're hearing, rate and review the show. It really helps other people find us. And of course, thank you so much for listening.